What is going on, everybody? Welcome to A Theology of Hustle. I'm your host, Curry Blanford, and today I'm talking to Michaela O'Donnell. This episode, y'all, is so, so good. Uh, Michaela spends her life sort of talking about the theology of work and has written an incredible book called Make Work Matter. And so we are talking a theology of work in even more depth than we normally do. I think you're really going to get a lot out of this episode. We delve into some like really, really important issues about work, uh, things that I think you probably have thought about if you're listening to this podcast. And I hope, you know, are delving into like good conversations for what you're looking for, uh, for being here. Uh, this is such a great episode. We cover just like a really in-depth theology of work. We cover a theology of calling, uh, and just like such a I think a really helpful way. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this uh, whole episode. So I highly encourage you to uh, read this book, make work matter. Uh, you can find it everywhere. You can find books before we get to the episode. Just want to remind you to make sure you're following me on Instagram and Facebook at theology of hustle and on Twitter at Curry Blanford, just to stay up to date with what we got going on in the podcast and enjoy hearing from Michaela. All right. Well, Michaela, thanks so much for uh, making time for me and coming on the podcast and talking work with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Curry. It's really good to be here. I love it. Let's uh, let's jump off and just kind of have you give the quick intro to yourself there. Yeah. Thanks. I Let's see. For work, well, goodness, for my paid work, I'm the executive director of the Max Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary. Uh, Max Dupree was longtime CEO of Herman Miller, which is actually a furniture mm. company. I'm sitting in one of the chairs right now. Just really, really nice. great furniture. And he was also a longtime chair of the board at Fuller Seminary. And I never got to meet Max, but from all the stories I can piece together, he feels like the kind of person, the kind of man who was was who he was wherever he was, um, whether he was in the boardroom or acting as a CEO or as a granddad. And that's kind of the same thing that we're trying to help people do at the Dupree Center is help people be a whole person wherever they are. So that's what I do for my paid work. I My work history is as a business owner and entrepreneur. My husband and I started a, a creative agency, branding video, almost a decade ago now. Goodness, I'd have to you know think really slow for a second and do some math to figure out exactly <laughs> when. Uh, that that has it, it, probably the most formative work experience of my life. Uh, my unpaid work, mm-hmm. I'm a mother. I've got two little children, a six-year-old, very br- brand new six. So I'm still getting used to saying six-year-old, and that's an important distinction in our household, <laughs> and a son who is headed towards three. So that is... Yeah. And I'm you know, married to my husband, Dan. I don't know that I would say that that's work in the same way, but certainly part of the picture uh, relationally. Um, yeah. And then, you know, be, what I just described sort of fills the plate in terms of um, what a, how I spend my time. And um, I additionally, though, I just wrote a book and I know that we're going to talk a bit about that, but it's called Make Work Matter. And it's all about kind of your guide to meaningful work in a changing world. So that's, that's a bit about what I'm up to. I don't know that I did that in beginning, middle, end story, narrative arc structure, maybe as requested, but that's a little glimpse into what I'm up to. That was actually perfect. Okay. And you got the book in there. Yeah. So I didn't have to like try to, it was a whole, you did a, you did a really nice job. Thank so, you. Thank you for um, that information. I'll take care of the narrative arc for <laughs> great, you. So. Great. <laughs> okay. So let's, uh, let's do that then. Let's jump into that uh, narrative arc and let's start at the there was kind of a, a, a point at which you realized, right, you had some grad school, you were kind of in, uh, kind of doing some odd job sort of stuff, and, and you were just like in, in, a, 
in a moment of like just not knowing what was next or what you even should be doing, can we start there and then maybe move into your entrepreneurship? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was in a funk, and uh, I've I've since learned to kind of label it a little bit di- beyond just the funk and recognize that there there's some there's some sacredness in that in that time period, which has mm. actually repeated many times since, just in different forms. So my husband and I both went to Fuller Seminary. We got master's degrees in theology, and we graduated in the middle of the Great Recession. This is 2010, 2011. Curry, there were seriously zero jobs for people with theology degrees. It was like, what? Yeah, right. You've, I have one of those. You have one of those. Uh, so you're nodding yes, hardcore yes, right yes. now. Yeah. And I graduated in 09. So did you? So you, okay. So you actually know exactly what I'm talking about. And I was at, uh, I was a Starbucks. I was a barista for the next eight years. You're a barista. So. Okay. So you're a barista for the next eight years. We're in LA. Our rent is, was super expensive. We had just gotten married. It was like, oh my goodness, are we going to be able to pay our rent? Like, Curry, I'd never imagined myself as somebody, you know, I, I grew up in a middle class, working class, extended family. We work hard, Irish Catholic Midwest. I had never imagined myself as somebody who was going to struggle to pay rent. And there there we were. So my aunt um, on a, you know, huge mercy gift asked me if I wanted to come work for her. She's a lawyer. And I was like, yeah, for sure. Like whatever, whatever you got, I'll do. She's like, great. Your job is to fill out forms for my clients with the state of California. I'm like, okay, sounds good. These are, you know, just incredibly, she's in trust in estates and, you know, is doing stuff for, especially for families who have children or special needs. So there's a lot at stake mm-hmm. in the documents and yeah. they have to be perfect. And I am an Enneagram seven curry and perfection is not my strong suit. And so I had to, and and you had to fill them out. um, You you had to fill them out on a typewriter. So I literally had Mm. to buy a typewriter and fill out forms. And that was what I was doing for a a good bit. um, Probably the better part of the first year out of grad school, which was just so different than I had imagined my life turning out and Mm. had to come front and center with some questions of, okay, that whole script of you're going to get a good degree and then be out be out there doing your part to change the world. I, I actually have come to realize that that work was critical, important, and valuable. And my theology of work has grown since that time. But in the moment, it honestly kind of sucked. And I, yeah. I'm like, this is, I just spent a lot of money to get a degree that now I'm filling out forms. And so that ensued a whole that ensued a decade um, of work within myself, internal work, eventually some external work. You mentioned the uh, you know kind of entrepreneurial side and eventually some doctoral work in the academic side. But a lot of the work I'm doing now, I mean, the, the last thing I'll say is this. If you would have told me 10 years ago, hey, you're going to be talking to people about their work, I would have been like, probably not. That doesn't sound very much fun. <laughs> But the work I'm doing today is birthed out of the last decade, which in many ways started right there with a typewriter filling out forms for the state of California. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate you just even kind of talking about that in the book. You know, I mean, you've been doing this a long time talking about work and stuff, but it's just so easy to talk about the good times of work yeah. and so easy to skip over the the tough times, you know? Um, yeah. And so I, I think that's a message that needs to be, heard right like you see a person like where they are down the road and you forget about the path like the journey that it took to really get there you know yeah for sure a couple things on that one you know we've got a lot of feelings about our work um i think this comes down to the complicated sense of 
what job, if you will, to play with words, work is supposed to have in our lives. And I think as a culture, we've decided the job that work is supposed to have is one where it helps us understand ourselves, where we feel significant, where we live out our purpose, where we get to know who we are and our identity. And that's a whole lot of pressure to put on work. And that's a work as a singular context for doing all of that processing and developing as a, as a person, as a, as people of God, that's a recipe for unmet expectations. So it, we do, we have a lot of feelings about our work and many of those feelings are not just, look how awesome this is. A lot of my own feelings along the way, even when things looked good on the outside, there's still just a ton of complexity there. So that's, Mm. that's the first thing. Um, the second thing and this is actually in the book, but it's a, you know, when we were first getting started, it was actually in the same phase when I was typing, uh, you know, forms, my husband was doing an internship, you know, in parentheses, read unpaid. Right. right. Yeah. So unpaid internship with a really wonderful uh, film producer in town. And so I'm not knocking the fact that it was unpaid. That's sort of how that works in the industry. And he said to my husband, Dan, it's going to take you 10 years to get where you think you should be today. And he wasn't saying it's going to take 10 years for you to be an A-lister and to, you know, win an Oscar and all these other things. He's like, just, it's going to take a decade to get where you think you should be today. And at first that felt like a super aggressive punch in the gut, you know, again, emotionally. And over time, I've come to realize just how right that man was and how wise. So the, Onto the un, onto the feelings, a, a big part of the feelings is that we, just because we imagine or even let's throw in a word calling because we feel called, we expect that the timeline of that to be different than sometimes it actually is. So ensue more feelings, grief, loss, et cetera, alongside the also good feelings that sometimes come. Yeah, <clears throat> that's good. There is a lot to unpack <laughs> uh, right there. Um that's good stuff. Uh, I don't even know where I want to go with all of that first. Okay, let's do this. Let's talk calling, and then maybe okay. we'll jump in, like back into the story. Because as I've gone on my journey of sort of doing this podcast, talking to people about work, like one of the big things that I come up against a lot is calling and just our view of calling and how messed up it is, right? And I I want to be really critical of that, but you're like critical of that in like a really, I think, profound and healthy way. So can you talk about how you view calling and wrap that all together? Yeah, well, first of all, if there's anything profound and helpful, it's certainly birthed out of the less helpful, maybe with some expletives attached, because I, I hit it a lot too in, in my own yeah. in my own work, in my own life, but then also all the time. And, you know, just to zoom in on on kind of, you know, a real life scenario, I teach as part of my role at Fuller Seminary and I teach classes on vocation. Vocation, you know, as you well know, just basically being synonymous for the idea of calling. Right. And I walk in on the first day and I ask the students, these are students who are super smart. They're there to get a master's degree. They've got good education, oftentimes coming from Christian education backgrounds probably half of which are hoping to go into formal pastoral ministry. The other half are there to just kind of figure out what's next. And they sense God inviting them to ask questions. Okay. And so I asked this group of people, what is calling? And all kinds of stuff starts coming out. Right. And I'm not, I'm not talking yet. I'm just facilitating. We're just whiteboarding this. And eventually what we get to is something like calling is a job I love. 
Calling is the job I was meant to do. And I'm like, if, and then I have to break the news. You know, you're nodding right here. This is what we come up against. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's a, that is beautiful. That is really, really beautiful. I wish that's what the Bible said about calling. In fact, yes. in fact, it's not. And right. there's a whole lineage all the way back to the early church. And then, you know, medieval, you get into the reformers that were doing some great work on the theology of vocation in Europe in the 16th century all the way into industrialization and now the age that we're in and the theology of calling has traveled right through this this, mm-hmm. this there's a lineage of why we are at the point now where we where most of us too many people i'll say it differently too many people think calling is a job i love so we could we don't right. need to unpack all that right this second but that that comes from somewhere and maybe even investigating what our own definitions or working definitions of calling are and asking where they come from is a healthy exercise but for me, it's been helpful to think about calling with an image. And this image, this is an image in the book, and the image is a set of nesting dolls. So often calling is talk, talked about in terms of, you know, central in particular or, in, you know, kind of internal and external. And while that, I think that that's helpful on one level, there's still an inherent bifurcation when we say it's this or this. So I was in search of a bit of an image that said, like, it's actually all of this kind of at the same time. So if we talk, think about that innermost doll, that's basic, basic call to belong to Jesus stuff, right? This is Matthew 4. Yep. Next layer out, this is the call to participate in the work that God is doing in the world, the mission of redemption and reconciliation, restoration, whatever R word you want to throw in, all sort of leading in the same direction. Next doll out, the call to create, probably in service and in love at least, of those in our, around us, our neighbors. This is Genesis 1, this is Luke 10. And then finally, once you have those kind of core callings nested within, you can talk about an outermost doll, if you will, that is all the particulars, the people, the places, the roles, yes, sometimes jobs that we're called to as individuals and groups, but those particular places and contexts, some of which we're experiencing at exactly the same time, right? I'm called to be a mother. I'm called to be a leader. I'm called to teach, right? Right. Are expressions of all that's nested within. And that image has been helpful for me to, to not be so bifurcated and also to break down the mental model that we've got a calling and that that a calling plays out in a job. So that's that's a that's a lot more of a lot there for you, Curry, but that, that's where I would go on calling. <laughs> no, I think that's great. I I do. I run up against that all the time. I run up against that in my life. Let's be honest. Like just feeling like, you know, <clears throat> even in ministry, I really do have a moment where I felt called even before I knew what any of that even meant. I was a baby Christian, felt called into ministry. So I really struggle with just even this concept and how it relates to my own life, you know, and um but it is there's it is not biblical the way we have viewed this calling that God has this like perfect job out there for us that is going to make all our wildest dreams come true. And not only that, it's going to have, it's going to make us enough money that we don't ever have to like work. You know, it's all prosperity theology at, at its, at its core and call, like we are called. And I love that, that central nesting doll. We are called to, to Christ, to be, to be followers of Christ, to, to walk out this life as, you know, Christ crucified, you know, his, his image in this world. And so, 
Yeah, I think that's a really important topic because we get like, how, how do you talk about somebody being called that that isn't in a job that they want to be doing or has to take care of a loved one or is differently abled even, right? How do we talk about calling uh, in those instances, right? Yeah, and it so quickly becomes a very privileged conversation that's more right. so a, a reflection of the privilege of having a job you love is actually a privilege, right? right? Getting to write out your own version of a job description is a privilege. And so it's, it's tricky water fast. And, and, and at the same time, it's like, God, I do actually think God compels us and speaks to right. us and what to do with that. And we naturally want containers for it. And I think that, you know, the church has said, okay, here's the, a container is that you're called to ministry or a container is that increasingly, which actually this is liberating in many contexts, it started with Luther and the Reformation. You can have a job that's not in the, in the, in church and it can still be a calling. And Curry, I'm a business owner. And so what that means is that I appreciate and probably at, at the core respect and am on board with basic capitalistic principles. But but there's a but in there. And that is two things. One, capitalism, like our economic structure was never intended to be a vehicle for calling. It's just two, those are not supposed to go together. And right. it, so we get in there and we do our human thing, which is both beautiful and also sometimes problematic to this idea of calling. And it's it's both much more simple in that God is compelling us to belong and to express belonging everywhere we are. And more complicated in the fact that, well, that doesn't fit in neat, tidy boxes. What do we do with it? Yeah, right. Because, I mean, there is a sense in which we are gifted, right, in certain things. Mm -hmm. And and God has given us those gifts, right, empowered by the Holy Spirit even, like to take it into a to that next level of theology. Right. And so there are those things and like those things that will kind of make us happy. So we're, I guess we're, are we holding a tension right between the two things a a lot of times? Yeah, I think, I mean, it comes back to the whole idea that, you know, as Christians, I think we would say that we are inherently living in multiple kingdoms. Like we're living within the kingdom of God. And to that we owe our gifts and our service but that the kingdom of God is not this distinct. It, it, I, I don't want to take away from the separateness. I'm not trying to say that, but it's not physically, at least in a concrete right. sense, existing as this other place we go to and visit and come back from or live in. So it's layered in with all the other kingdoms, and you know whether we're part of it, right? So we're. I'm, I'm a white person living in Los Angeles. I'm probably you know part of and and part of. The, the problem and even some of these negative kingdoms that are at play, of course, my, mm-hmm. my role in that is to push back and to be clear about that and so on and so forth. So I'm not saying I'm, I'm sort of, you know, cast aside just because of my sociocultural location. But the truth is that we're living in the midst of multiple kingdoms all the time. Yeah. And so we're, and so you say, is it a tension? It's like, well, of course it is. And we've in, mm-hmm. this goes all the way back to the feelings. I think we end up our our literal bodies and our minds and our, now I'm not a mental health professional though. I sometimes I'm like, I should have got my degree in psychology. That might've been more marketable, but I think that, that what ends up happening is it just, this tension lives in us and 
we just went way out, right? Kingdom of God, theology of calling. I brought up capitalism and I referenced Pharaoh-like kingdoms, you know, from the book of Exodus without (laughs) actually putting a name on it. But our bodies and our feelings and our relationships is where the effects of all that lives. And so, of course, Mm. it feels like a tension. Of course it does. Yeah. That's good. I, yeah, I appreciate that. I I think we don't like, we don't have space to sort of even process some of that stuff sometimes. Right. It's just like, it's just happening to us. Very fast. It's happening to us (laughs) fast and it's getting faster. And I mean, now you're talking about change and the impact of a changing world and what does, you know, how as Christians, how is God on the move in a changing world? And is God going as fast as the world is going right now? Or are we supposed to slow down? And so there, this is, I've been starting to think about it as a peculiar and particular time. Like we're just mm-hmm. in a very interesting time and this time's not going away. Like this is, this is what the next time will be built off of and so on and so forth. And so the, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, interesting and and to use your phrase a lot of life is happening to us and a lot of work is happening to us and perhaps part of the call let's use the word again for christians in this peculiar and particular time is to figure out how to make space Mm. for ourselves for each other to do the work that actually the work that I feel like you and I are doing right now. I feel like I'm processing some of my own stuff as we're talking, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm like, thank you, Curry, for helping me. So that's the the making space part becomes and and just an anecdote at the Dupree Center, we started a six-week cohort. Actually, you probably appreciate this story. We started a six-week cohort. This came out of my dissertation research. It the bones of it are the bones of the book, right? And a couple of years ago, we got a grant, and the whole point was it. I, I pitched the grant as we're going to help people become entrepreneurial. That's what that's what people that's what the church should do. Of course, there's so so much bias in there. And so I gathered this group of people, these very willing people, for a first beta group, and I was like ready to teach them all this stuff. And they just needed space. Like it was so clear, so fast that they just needed space to process all that was happening to them. And so we pivoted. I pivoted right there in the meeting and in the six meetings that came afterwards. And what ended up being birthed is a program called The Road Ahead. And it's a program that's literally for people who are in seasons of spiritual discernment, in vocational transition, in vocation in the biggest sense of that word. And we're using some of those baseline things that are effective, you know, in the lens of entrepreneurship, but we're not, that's not what we're doing. We're just giving people space to make sense of what's happening to them alongside other people who are also experiencing the happening, if you will. I love that. Especially as a husband of somebody who does therapy, Mm. like I understand the beauty of processing, right? I've learned over time, like, and and that's something we, I mean, that's what community is. Like that's what the church is supposed to be. And and I feel like we make so little time to actually process because we have, stuff to do right we like uh yeah we have we have work to do and and uh we don't take time to to do those necessary things i think do you think curry this is i'm going to sort of ask you a question uh it's been my observation that what you just said people started to notice that in covid times all Mm. of a sudden there was all this space whether we liked it or not and that space was difficult for a lot of reasons right yeah but out of that i've heard more people be like i just 
I don't want to overfill again. I I don't want to mm. be. I want more space. Space to process. Space to sit and do nothing. Space to rest. Have you observed that at all? I'm trying to think. I'm thinking through like church people yeah. and some of that stuff because I feel like we would definitely be in that category. But I I don't know that we were like overextended even before. But mm. even the stuff that we were doing, we're like. Let's uh, let's not, you know, yeah. even like kids, you know, it just gets gets wrapped up. I think there's a I think there is a, a desire to stay that way for a lot of people. I think a lot of times there's an inability to have the discipline to maintain mm. it, though. You know, like it's really I mean, life just wants to eat you alive and wants to mm. take like every moment of your time and, you know, utilize it. We live in such a fast paced culture like wait, we, yeah. we can't help it, I don't think. And so. I think it takes a lot. I'll say it take, I think there's a there's a desire. I think it takes a lot of discipline to yeah. uh, to actually fulfill. Would you Would you agree with that? I think that's wise. The word discipline isn't a word I've used before, but when you said it, I'm like, yeah, that's that's really good. Actually, and it ties in with what's felt very true for. I'll speak now, me personally, not so much of what I'm observing, is my relationship with rest and. Yeah. Because I'm a doer, right? I'm a doer. I like doing things, but I'm also a person who, who thinks about work and vocation. And so yeah. to say that, to, to say or to practice a life of that that doesn't include rest would feel weird. I would feel out of, mm-hmm. I would feel out of sync. And yet it's a serious issue for me, right? Because yeah. I've got, because yeah. it's like, because oh, it, I've got small kids. And so I'm always on the clock, even when I'm off the clock. And so the boundaries get harder. And so I've been thinking a lot about actually the book of Exodus and God delivering, you know, the enslaved Israelites. And I've been careful to figure out where, again, where in that story I would actually belong if that story was happening in present day. But in learning, in learning the lessons of God saying, yeah, that's not the rhythm. The rhythm is not a rhythm of constant going that at the core of it is about production. And at the core of it is about greed and it's probably about anxiety and scarcity and it, it's so easy. It, it's like, yeah, on a, you know, today I'm about to, you and I talked, I'm about to clock off for a bit and I'm going to go and I'm going to feel so restful. It's going to feel good. And I know that. I know that about myself. And then next week's yeah. going to come and we'll be like, we got to go hard until the end of the year and it's got to finish well. And it just, I'm like, whoa, it just happens so fast. And nice. so I think that's the discipline part, but also I'll use a word that my good friend Tracy Matthews uses. She runs an organization called Attune. I I feel like it's an attunement issue. Mm. So there's like, okay, and she'll give the analogy of, you know, if I sort of think about myself as somebody dipping my hand down in the current of where God is moving, can I dip my hand in, feel the direction and like move with that? And to me, that's that's a very centered invitation. That's a very abstract, but also like, yeah, I feel that in my bones. Can I pause and listen to the spirit of God in that way? And can I have the discipline Mm. to do that so that what I'm doing is an output of that rather than a all encompassing coming at me hard to do list? Yeah. I think that's good. Talking about attunement and just, and then all that takes time. It takes space, right? Yeah. Uh, 
all this is why we are huge Sabbath people. Mm-hmm. Even ab- about a year before the pandemic even started, we were practicing uh, Sabbath weekly, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, you go back to the Exodus story, right? When the Ten Commandments are given in the book of Exodus, the Sabbath is is based in creation. And the only thing that changes when it gets to Deuteronomy is that that, uh, that command is now based in God rescuing the people and bringing them out of Egypt, right? And so there's something about that, that like even rescue and, and what God does that's built into the fabric of creation. And we are, I mean... We are just going so fast, we we don't see it. Uh, and I think though, like one of the greatest disciplines we can have, as we're talking about, is rest and and Sabbath and you know stopping, yeah. which is kind of crazy, you know. Yeah, amen. And yeah. I, I would just add one more thing on there, and that is also, you know, the the commandments, the Ten Commandments. It's not just Sabbath for the hearers; it's Sabbath for the whole community, right? Yeah, and so right. there's this aspect of like, well, whose rest are we concerned about? And if I'm resting, but my neighbor isn't, then the system's not really working, you know? And so, and I think that our own rest is a pathway to be able to observe when others aren't at rest and to not necessarily assume that they're not at rest and not Sabbathing, you know, practicing Sabbath because they are undisciplined or don't want to, Right. but maybe they can't access it. And so we have yeah. a responsibility, I think, as believers who are part of this lineage of a people who have been created and then rescued and you know the whole biblical drama to to really notice and, and look out for each other and to, I'll say, without necessarily adding concrete examples, figure out how to take action when it, things don't seem to be lining up for the community at large. Yeah, I think that's good. How do you, I mean, could you unpack that a little bit? Like, how do you see that sort of playing out? What does that, what does that mean to you when you talk about, you know, uh, yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's complicated, right? Um, And I'm thinking particularly about people who, okay, so a, a small example. I saw a article several weeks ago and the article was Amazon is going to let everybody work from home now. I'm like, wow, major tech company working from home. That's whoa. Like think about the overhead they're going to save. And I started doing all the calculations in my head. <laughs> and then I walked out because I think I was going on a walk. I walked out to the street and I saw an Amazon truck drive by. And I was like, oh, not everybody's working from home. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just going to say, it's hard to pack materials right. from home, right? Yeah. Right. And Which is the bulk of their business. The bulk you know? of their business. Right. <laughs> all of the, yeah, I guess they have the <laughs> online stuff, but yes, right. Right. So it, 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 it all came into focus for me in that moment that I'm like, okay, there, of course, I'm, I'm not unaware of this. I'm not, you know, living that naively, but it was a reminder I'm like, this. we're just living in different worlds right now. And so what does it mean to, and I actually don't know if I have a good answer for this, Curry, but I'll ask a question. What does it mean to be for the Amazon driver in my neighborhood? What mm-hmm. does it mean to, in, it, you know, it's, I don't, it's, what does it mean to be for him? I was gonna say him, but I've actually like, oh, there's some hers too. What does it mean to be for him and her? I don't know, but I think the answer to that question is probably one worth pursuing and probably one worth me pursuing as somebody who shops on Amazon and has boxes delivered to my house and therefore needs to understand my role in the Amazon system 
and you know my choices and how they're impacting others and so on and so forth. And it's such a giant system. I mean, it's, I'm talking about the maybe the most giant business that that impacts most of our everyday lives right now that I can right. think of. And I don't know that I have a great answer to that question, but it's it's starting with for me noticing that yeah, not ever that those Amazon workers are driving hard. I don't I don't know what rest looks like in this system and I think there's probably some disparity and then that kind of noticing and questions comes all, you know, all around the place, comes all the way into you know, our own workplaces. So something super small um that we just did this week is, you know, we have on our team, of course, some people who are on salary and some people who are hourly. And I've just in the past noticed that when it comes to honestly, weeks like Thanksgiving, there's not parity in the system. No, right. There's not. Nope. And so <laughs> who knows who's listening to this and who's going to, who's going to come, come have a conversation <laughs> with me. And I welcome it person, um, at, you know, in HR, but we're like, okay, we're going to do some on the clock off time actually, because we're going to take the rest that I have access to this week that I just described to you, I'm going to take, and we're going to figure out how to make that more available for everyone on our team. While also acknowledging that not every role that we need filled is a salary role or a full-time role. And so it's not that we're changing our entire system and how it works, but we're recognizing certain points. So, so that's the Amazon worker all the way down to just my own team. Mm. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Gosh, I, I feel like uh, we might just need to sit here all day and just talk about all of this stuff because like, yeah, there is. I mean, hourly workers don't have vacation time, right? So if they don't work, they're not getting paid. You know, my wife's in that position because she bills, you know, for her clients. So if she's not billing clients, she doesn't get paid. Right. And that makes it really hard to go on a week long vacation, doesn't it? You know, to because you have to save twice for that vacation. So right. Not to mention maternity um, leave. I mean, I, right. I, yeah. I, you know, I had kids while we were while we yeah. were working while all my all our money. And then it's just, it's so real. So it's yeah. it, the, the systems certainly are what they are. But yeah, if you're not working, you don't get paid when you're working for yourself. Billable hours. If you're yeah. not getting paid, if you don't work if you're hourly. And then so the question is, okay, is the holy grail of work a full-time employee status? I'm not I'm actually not sure I would say that because yeah. I don't know that that's predictable and secure in the way that maybe it was 10 or 20 years ago. But the disparities between and the realities and the implications for rest are are important to know about and notice, I think as as believers, as Christians. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I we actually got rid of our Prime membership because of a lot of the stuff mm. that you're talking about. Yeah, because I still order from Amazon every once in a while, like you know, but it has to be a bunch of stuff, right, at one time. And it, I was just a sloppy shopper. I would just go on and order like a two or three dollar item, like all the time, mm. you know, constantly. And I I just didn't like the way it made me sort of consume, right, yeah. and making it so easy just to like purchase stuff and there was no I mean not that you really can understand the supply chain anyway from like where it comes from but I I just wasn't even thinking about any of that stuff or you know yeah so I think I think there's a lot that we could talk about in just the ways that we you know go about our everyday lives you know before we even get into manufacturing and like overseas stuff and all of that stuff so I I think it's appropriate though right now to to jump into like something that's happened since we've been part of the workforce, which is the gig economy. Yeah. Uh, maybe one of the 
the biggest shifts that's happened in the last like 50 or 60 years of work. You know, you go from a, uh, a job where you possibly have a pension, you know, you have vacation time, you have health care mm-hmm. uh, into a, a work world, you know, a workforce where like, like companies are no longer responsible for any of that stuff. Right. And so a lot of like the position that younger people coming into the workforce, myself actually right now, you know, just have found themselves in is that gig work. Mm-hmm. Right. So how does that sort of change how we work and how we think about work and, and all of those things? It's a great question. And much of my professional life has been marked by gig work. Even actually now that I have a full-time job, I'm still engaged in gig work. And I still am owner of record in a company that bills in contract work. So it's, but I I can remember, um, and my husband, um, I mean, literally just yesterday, he texted me. He's like, oh, here's what I'm billing for this year. Like, oh my goodness. Okay. Now we know what I made this year. And it's November, you know, it's November. (laughs) Who knows when (laughs) this is going to get released, but right now we're talking and it's November. (laughs) And this is when he knows how much money he's going to make for the year. So that's a really interesting thing. And that has implications for us, and I'll speak personally and then I'll zoom out a bit on trends and observations, it's hard to budget when you don't know how much money you're going to make. And it's hard to make decisions about kids and yeah. healthcare and so on and so forth when you actually don't know how much money you're making. So there's an unknown factor there that is full of risk. And I think that at the at the core of what we're talking about here in the gig economy is that the burden of risk has been transferred from systems and corporations and institutions to individuals. And that needs to be named because we're not, as individuals, probably properly equipped to bear all of the solutions that that risk entails, right? Now we got to figure out our own healthcare. We got to figure out our own retirement plan. We have to be getting all of our own work and clients. And there's just, it's a real, it's a real grind. It's it's a real grind and it's real taxing. That's one thing. Um, Gig work is interesting, independent work, independent work being basically anybody who's not a full-time employee. So you could be a solopreneur, you could own your own thing, you could be driving an Uber, you could be, you know, kind of contracted to help someone redo their logo, really any, anything in between. It's it's on the rise, like you said. And it's like the, the latest stat I saw was over 40% of the workforce is engaged in some form of gig work. It doesn't mean it's their full-time job again, right? Yeah. So I just told you yeah. I have a full-time job and I'm also engaged in gig work, but that's a large swath of the population. Yep. And in there, um, I haven't seen the most recent data on this, so I won't throw numbers in there, but people really range from being excited about the fact that they are doing this. They've got a, they've got a side hustle and they've got agency and autonomy that they haven't had before or they're, right. I, you know, I would say that my husband and I, in terms of long winter media, we fit into this. Like we feel good about the work we do. And it, I don't know that we started in that place in terms of why we, our motivation for starting our business, but eventually it's like, yeah, this is good. And then on the other side, you've got reluctant people. I'm thinking about, you know, literally the, he, he was probably 80 Curry. 80-year-old man who drove me to the airport the other day in a lift. Mm. So kind. And I was like, yeah. and we were just chatting as you do, you chop it up. And I was like, what do you, what do you like? Tell me your story. And he's like, well, my daughter and her son are having a hard time paying for childcare because it's so mm. incredibly expensive. And she's on her, she's like, you know, rising in kind of the medical field. 
but not quite to sort of her top earning value. And he said, so I'm driving the Lyft to help them pay childcare bills. Mm. And I'm like, okay, like, and maybe he's also having fun. He certainly was outgoing and seemed to be enjoying our conversation. But I'm like an economy in which an 80 year old picks up gig work because his daughter is facing the fact that childcare is taking anywhere between 13 and 35% of people's household income. This is, this is, again, it's not, it's not all, it's not working for everybody in at the same level. So, so things are working for some people just great. Things are not working for other people at all. And there's a whole spectrum in between. And I, I, when I talk to people who are doing mostly gig work, there's often parts of it that aren't working very well and that feel very hard. I mean, I, I would be curious if you're some if you're identifying as someone who's in the gig economy, just your own feelings about all that. Now I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you. Remember, that's not my <laughs> not my uh, competency. But you're in it, right? You're in yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a. I was a. All right. Yeah, I am a full time pastor. Like like I said, in transition, uh, and own two businesses. I own a business down in Texas, and I own my own marketing sort of freelance designs sort of stuff. You know, uh, and even that. Like all of those jobs had their own gig Hmm. aspects to them, right? You know? And so you're just sort of piecing together like this uh, livelihood out of all these different areas, which I really thrive in that Hmm. zone, right? I feel like those things are good. And I, I, I enjoy doing all of those aspects of things and even being, having my hands in a lot of different places. But some of that responsibility for like, the money and yeah. like I said, healthcare, you know, my wife is now dealing with a chronic illness, mm-hmm. right? Diabetes medication is stupid expensive, mm. you know? And so unless you have a certain level of healthcare, you can't, like, you just can't make it, you know? And so, um, I think, uh, and, and having access to that level of, of healthcare, like straight out of pocket just doesn't make sense. It's not, I mean, you're talking, you know, the same, the same level of, of, uh, income coming out of your stream as, as you know, your average childcare, uh, costs. And so, uh, I think those, those freedom aspects are really cool to me, like getting to do sort of whatever I want, but the, but the lack of sort of anybody, anybody else sort of like taking any responsibility for like, you know, the, the financial aspects of life can be really, really taxing. And I think, uh, yeah, it's just stressful. So, did I answer your question? Yeah, stressful. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. I think I, I'm just I'm with you. I've experienced the same. Yeah. I love the freedom. I love the freedom of being able to, at least in my head. And, I, and both my parents were, are entrepreneurs. They still are. They own their own businesses. I've got lots of big Irish Catholic family. Lots of entrepreneurial people in my family. So that I'm very biased to, not only love that freedom, but my my well being has been shaped around noticing opportunities and figuring out if. I can develop something that fits that need, right? That's just the yeah, entrepreneurial right. move. So I love that. And it's super stressful. Even even in our business when clients aren't paying on time right. or when two of them are backordered or they are on 90-day payment cycles and you're like, cool, we have a, a mortgage. And so it just- I don't have that freedom to have a 90-day like, yeah. cycle on payments. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, the yes. bank that I'm paying my house payment to or in the childcare <laughs> and the medication I'm seeking you know, for my yep. literal well-being, they're not good with 90 days. So, right. And we become the middle people there. 
Yeah. Again, yep. we're assuming the risk. So there is great freedom. And for people wired like you and I, that's very attractive in a lot of ways. And it comes with not just the risk that we might fail as we pursue those opportunities, but the risk of very concrete things in our everyday lives that implicate people we love. And that is stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, I, I don't know what the, I don't know what the solutions are for all of that stuff. You know what I mean? I, I, uh, but I think, I think there's, there's a sense in which a lot of like bigger companies are utilizing that gig economy to push more money to the top earners and less money to the bottom earners. And Amazon, I think is a really good example of that. Uh, but I mean, corporations in general, you know, I mean, just the disparity between what the top earners are making, what the bottom earners are, are getting wider and wider. And part of that is those safety nets that used to be there regarding pensions and regarding, you know, healthcare and you know, how much they even pay out of healthcare. Right. And I, I think, I think that that's that's getting into dangerous water for like the a, a vast swath of people that just can't afford to make it, you know. Right. And so it, it makes sense. And without getting too political, and I actually don't mean this as political allegiance, but it makes sense that there's the rise of, you know, AOC, Bernie Sanders, even Elizabeth Warren, who's, you know, all this is interesting to me, regardless of politics, yeah. just because it has such economic repercussions for the things you're talking yeah. about. But I'm like, of course there's a rise because the systems aren't working for people and they're like, I need I need someone to care about my health care, right? And, yeah. and I need someone to care about my diabetes medication. I need someone to care about my, you know, the fact that I've got chronic pain in my hip. I need someone to care about the fact that I need to send three kids to, you know, school or whatever else. Yeah. And so that I think that that becomes, in, in circling back to the church, it's like, okay, what what is our role in that? Mm. What is our role in systems? And, you know, there's a lot of data about the trends in, you know, I work at an evangelical institution. I wasn't raised evangelical. That association came in many ways by my being at Fuller, um, though I would, I really do appreciate the way that Fuller and our president, Mark Laberton, talks about you know, the core of the good news, the evangel yeah. that's really at, at the historical heart of evangelicalism. But when you look at the data of what's happening, it's, I, I just have a lot of questions about collectively, have we done enough to pay attention to the kind of issues that we're talking about the, yeah. that really do affect people's medical and kids and otherwise which is evidence in the gig economy but isn't it certainly isn't limited to it um yeah you know you're talking about yeah. amazon and etc yeah no i think that's good i think michaela I, I really do think we need to like i think you can make political statements without them being partisan statements yeah that's good and i think that's what we need to we need to have more of that right like this is a political issue that affects people and as as people who vote Right. We have a say in this sort of stuff, but that doesn't mean we have to follow party lines in order to accomplish those things. Right. And I think that the 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 splintering of these two parties has really wrecked a lot of things and is just getting worse and worse. And we as Christians need to stand sort of in that that gap. I, I really do believe so. Well, thanks for saying that. The last very short thing I'll say there is that 
I, I do think that Christians can be courageous in that and that yeah. my trepidation, even around making a statement that could be construed in ways X, Y, or Z is indicative of how hard it's become just to talk, yeah. just to talk to yes. each other. Cause it's like, yeah. I actually, like, I, I don't know pretending I have all the solutions. I'm just naming right. that some people can't pay for their medicine or their kids to go to preschool. That's all I'm naming. So thank you for being so clear uh, about that. I think you're wise there. Uh, I think that's an important conversation. These are conversations we, we need to be having uh, and um, coming to yeah, some, some sort of place that we're like, we got to get something done here someday, right? We got to get something accomplished yeah. at some point. So, okay. Can we, can we just talk real, real quickly? I mean, you talk about entrepreneurship, even in the Christian life, right? In, yeah. in the book and just like what that means. Can you just sort of tell us about your thoughts on, on some of that? Yeah, I mean, I actually referenced it a little bit earlier. So uh, my belief would be that at the heart of what it means to be entrepreneurial is to notice opportunities, to think that you could be part of helping to meet those needs and dealing with the risk that comes along the way. And that happens all the time every day outside of the starting of formal businesses. In fact, it happens most of the time outside of the starting of formal businesses And for me, I'm like, oh, imagine a world in which many more people believe they have the resources to be part of the solutions to the Mm -hmm. problems they see and believe that, you know, we are grafted into a story that says that death will never have the final word, failure will never define us. So risk is, is healthy and it's okay. And that as people with eyes to see and ears to hear, we can notice opportunity. We're never, we're not the, we're not the Messiah. We're not the savior, but we have real resources, right? We have real resources as people, our time, our relationships, sometimes our money, just the way our brains and our hearts work, our empathy, our compassion that we can put toward the many needs that we notice in the world. And so I'm on a mission for everybody to be a little more entrepreneurial and for that word to come outside, even the context of starting a formal business. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I really loved that uh, part of the book. It just, yeah, I'd never thought of it that way. You know what I mean? It's always been around business that you talk about on entrepreneurship, but there's just, there's so many places, you know? I mean, we see, we see needs every day of our lives, like at work and, you know, in everything that we do uh, around us, you know? So, um, yeah, that's great. Uh, okay. So where are the best places to sort of find you, Michaela, and all of those things? Well, first of all, let me just say, I really like talking to you. You're a great host. You're very thoughtful. Um, I've done a lot of podcasts recently and you're just you're really good at this. So thanks for having me and thanks for this conversation. It's it's helpful for me. Um, I Like I said, I'm the executive director at the Dupree Center at Fuller Seminary. You can find us by Googling that or just Dupree.org, D-E-P-R-E-E. Wrote a book. It's called Make Work Matter, available wherever books are sold. I'm also on Instagram, LinkedIn, all those places. Just Michaela O'Donnell. Okay. I'll put all that in the show notes. Do you have time for two uh, quick final questions as we wrap up? Sure. Okay. So my first question is, what is the strangest job that you have ever had? Oh, it's a good question. I was the residential, I was a residential counselor, like basically an intern at a place. It was 84 acres in Northern California where teenagers were coming to do emotional rehabilitation. And it was strange because it was an all the time around the clock job, literally. It was like, (laughs) and and I got paid very little and I was testing a lot of muscles. (laughs) And my boss at the time was like, this is the hardest job you're ever going to have. And I'm like, 
are you serious? I'm 23. He's like, it's for sure going to be the hardest job. And it, it was the hardest job. Wow. And I still, the, it, and strange and just that it was so unique. And I don't know that I would ever do something like that again. So residential counselor at a counseling center for teenagers who needed a bit of time to rehabilitate. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's some stories there. Lots. So. <laughs> okay. So my final question then is what is one piece of advice you would give to somebody looking to bring God's kingdom more into their work? Oh goodness. What a good question. I like to go just very basic here. I think that most of our faithfulness shows up in very ordinary day by day on the way kind of situations. Yeah. So my advice would be actually to look for manna. Um, you know, manna is the, obviously the sustenance that sustained the Israelites, the very bland stuff that appeared each morning as new mercy and kept people going through the day forward. And it's just very, very, very unexpected. And yet that was, that was how God's grace was coming. It was so uneventful, mm. um, if you will. And the more I've been able to pay attention to God's grace in my work, looking more like manna and less like fireworks, the more I've been able to attune to what's, what God's actually doing there and therefore join in, in the way I talk to people, make decisions, do or don't do certain things. So it, it would, it would be to look for manna. Hmm. I love it. I think that's a, that's a great reminder and just, yeah, we can't be reminded too much of that sort of stuff. Michaela, thank you so much for the work, the book, all the conversation. It's been uh, such a delight to get to hang out with you a little bit. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from uh, Michaela and just uh, thought about, you know, the theology of work in a little more in-depth way. I, I encourage you, I'd love to hear what you thought, what you got out of, you know, the topic of calling or how Michaela approaches that, or, you know, some of these, I don't know, more political issues that we got into, uh, in this episode. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So reach out to me on, on all the socials where you can find me. And I highly encourage you to check out the book and check out all of Michaela's socials as well, just to stay up to date with what she's got going on. Some amazing things coming out of the Dupree center there at Fuller that she runs. And, uh, yeah, until next time, get out there and hustle. 